Okay, is everybody in John chapter 11? That's where we're going to be starting our journey this morning. Like I said, super stoked to take you guys into a quick little dip into the book of Leviticus this morning. How many of you guys just love the book of Leviticus? Oh, yes, one person raises their hand, and he's lying, totally lying. How many of you have even read the book of Leviticus? Oh, well done, church. You guys are holy saints. Let's pray. Lord, as the stillness of creation falls over us, we prayed this morning during pre-gathering prayer that each of us would be washed in the Pacific Ocean of your love, rain coming down, all of this water imagery of waterfalls and our lives being poured out as an act of worship, a gift given back to you and given one unto another. And so, Holy Spirit, only you, only you can do through us what you intend to accomplish. And so with a sense of deep resolve and a sense of surrendered peace and a genuine letting go of our agenda, we seek to hear from you today and receive from you today and glorify you today. We've prayed and we've asked that not a single one of us would leave this space and this time in your word without being transformed or touched in some way. And so we thank you in advance for the way you're going to form our souls as we worship you in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me ask you guys a question this morning to get us rolling. What would you guys say are the marks of a true disciple? The marks. What are the marks of somebody that's a true disciple of Jesus Christ? Because this is a question that John answers throughout the entirety of his gospel. He meticulously traces the character development of multiple characters, showing where some continuing commitment to Jesus some, the crowds, peel away as things get a little bit too difficult with Jesus, and then Jesus' opponents. The whole time, John is asking, what are the marks of a true disciple of Jesus? And so we might say, well, consistent Bible reading and prayer and community and attending Sunday gatherings, or maybe some of us might list, well, a true disciple, the marks of a true disciple is they're bold in their evangelism, where they're committed to social justice and work amongst the people of the city. They're going on mission trips. If you come from a more Pentecostal background, possibly you might say the mark of a true disciple is they speak in tongues and they prophesy over the people. All of these types of things. Now, let me make this just a little bit more personal for you. What might you say are the marks of true discipleship in your life? What are the marks of true apprenticeship, true following, true discipleship of Jesus in your personal life today? Now, this is kind of a trick question because the marks of true discipleship are all of the things that I listed, maybe with the exception of tongues. Not everybody's going to speak in tongues. But all of these things that I've listed plus more. We are actually really hard-pressed to create an exhaustive list of the true marks of discipleship because when Jesus calls us to follow him, he calls every single facet of our being to become totally and entirely his. Our beliefs, our behaviors, our dreams, our goals, relationships, our work, our recreation, our life patterns, all of our pursuits, absolutely everything when we disciple ourselves to Jesus of Nazareth becomes his, is shaped by him, falls into alignment with his will. And so what John does here in his gospel is he very strategically sets up Mary as the premier exemplar 
as this beautiful example of what true discipleship looks like. Because Mary's was a life poured out at the feet of Jesus. Now to highlight her story and really make it pop, John sets it against the background of Jesus's opponents. These enemies of Jesus who cajoled for power and were constantly jockeying for position. Don't forget, John is a very, very sophisticated author. And he intends us, the readers, to see this stark difference of what a life poured out looks like in contrast to a life that is holding on and constantly clamoring for control. And so in Jesus's opponents, we get this glimpse, and I want you to hear this, we get this glimpse into the misery and actually into the ultimate futility of a life that is always scheming for personal gain, bullying for power, manipulating to make our way. So what John does is he starts here in verse 48 of John chapter 11, and he notes that the primary concern of the Pharisees, and the Pharisees were a primary opponent of Jesus throughout his entire ministry. In verse 48 of 11, John notes what their primary concern was, their whole initiative and goal and motivation. John eleven forty-eight. 48. If we let him go, the Pharisees said, if we let Jesus go on like this, everyone's going to believe in him. Jesus is a threat to them. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. The Pharisees, they were a separatist group of extremists, and they believed that their interpretation of Torah, the Old Testament, and strict adherence to their interpretations of the Old Testament, they believed that by so doing, they would ensure that the Jewish people would never be taken into exile again as they had in their history. And though their motivation, that is to not go into exile, to obey Torah, to obey Yahweh, to obey God was noble, The Pharisees, by the time of Jesus, had devolved into a community of bullying legalists driven by envy and a need for platform. And so Jesus was a threat to their position as he gained more fame throughout Galilee and Judea and Asia Minor. And Jesus was systematically deconstructing their most deeply held beliefs. And so rather than humbling themselves at the feet of this itinerant preacher and actually listening to what he was saying, They began to bully and manipulate and scheme to keep their power. And out of envy and fear, they began to plan his assassination to keep their position, to keep their place in society. And John wants us to see that it was all an act of total futility. Though they schemed and manipulated and strived, the Pharisees, the very thing that they didn't want to happen, the loss of their temple and the loss of their nation, though they strived and manipulated and thought that they were going to keep control and keep position, they ended up losing everything that they wanted anyway. 70 years after the resurrection of Jesus, the temple was burned to the ground and the Jewish people were dispersed throughout Asia Meyer. And so these Pharisees who were trying to control everything and hold on to everything ended up losing everything. John wants us to learn that living a life of striving to maintain control and maintain our position and manage our identity, it is an act of futility. And it makes us absolutely miserable in our day in, day out life. And worse yet, this manipulation and striving and anxiety deforms our souls. We spend our days full of worry and empty work. And in the end, we lose that which we want anyways futility. Caiaphas. Caiaphas. 
Caiaphas was this religious sellout and a political snake. He was a Sadducee. If the Pharisees were the hardcore fundamentalist conservative wing of Judaism, the Sadducees were the progressive far left liberalized wing of Judaism. And Caiaphas served as the high priest that year. And as a Sadducee, the man had basically compromised virtually every core tenet of the Old Testament to better align himself with the secular society that he wanted to be empowered by and recognized by. Caiaphas was a theological coward in bed with the cultural and the political powers of his day. And he was also a genius manipulator and schemer. He had made his way to the top and maintained his position at the top by manipulating and by scheming. And John, with him as well, wants to contrast. He wants to note, look at the futility and the misery of this man's life and don't fall prey to these temptations. In verse 50 of John 11, Caiaphas makes this statement to all of the rabble being roused by Jesus's popularity. Caiaphas says in verse 50 of John 11, you do not realize that it's better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. Now Caiaphas When he spoke those words, he thought he was making like a shrewd political move by throwing Jesus under the Roman bus, so to speak. He was instigating and kind of filling up the assassination plans of those that were opposing Jesus. And Caiaphas thought to himself, I'm going to fuel the fires here so that when the Roman bus runs over Jesus, I'll stand as the hero. I'll be the one who maintains power. He was manipulating, striving, and scheming. And John notes something very, very important about Caiaphas's words. Unknowingly, though he was being a snake about it, a total scoundrel, John says, Unknowingly, Caiaphas's words were prophecy. They were prophecy, and they were revealing the very way that God was going to save all of his people, namely by the death of Jesus on their behalf. The point being, and guys, don't miss this. Even when humans are manipulating situations for their own personal gain, God is using them like pawns on the chessboard to fulfill his purposes. We may think we are making our way through the world, going about it as wrongly and deceptively and manipulatively as we possibly can. And at the end of the day, mighty God says, checkmate. I used you to do my will. Be very, very careful with the God of the universe. This scoundrel, this snake in the grass became a prophet, a herald, of God's will in the world, though he was such a gnarly dude. And then, of course, we have Judas. Judas is the most tragic example of a life committed to controlling and self-service. John tells us that as Mary poured out the spikenard, this, this expensive perfume, Judas was aghast, pretending to be aghast. Why would she waste Why would she so lavishly pour out this expensive perfume, Judas would say. We should have spent that money and given it to the poor. Look how holy, look how pious, look at the marks of discipleship in my life, Judas put forth. But John notes in verse 6 of John chapter 12, he said this because he was a thief. As a keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Friends, there is nothing more devastating than a person who bears the marks outwardly of a true disciple, but inwardly they are dead men's bones. People who are close to Jesus physically, but far from Jesus in their heart, they will always be found out. Always. Always. Even posthumously. Even after death. 
one of the most respected apologists in the history of the church, Ravi, to live a life looking like you love Jesus, but inwardly to be far from Jesus is to be found out in the end. And for all of Judas's good looks and wealth accumulating by thievery in the end, his life was full of lies and his end was suicide. And now his name is held in ignominy for all of history. This was the result of Judas's self-gain, self-striving, manipulating, lying, and thieving. Nobody wants to name their kid Judas. That's the result of his life. <laughs> if your name is Judas, I am so sorry. <laughs> Thievery, power mongering, bullying, manipulation, striving, cajoling for power. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, Judas, they are egregious examples of these ways of being. But I'm telling you, there's a Sadducee and a Pharisee and a Judas in every single one of our hearts. Anxious, worrying, striving, manipulating, cajoling, bullying, doing what we do to maintain our position in life and create some pseudo sense of security. And all we are doing when we act that way is destroying our souls. It's acts of futility. And so in this backdrop, John drops this beautiful scene like a diamond against a black piece of velvet. This story of Martha and Mary and Lazarus in verses 1 through 6 of John 12. What we see there as we turn our attention to verses 1 through 6 is we see this small band of people who have let go. Hands open. They are not striving in this scene. They have ceased all of their strategizing. They are no longer manipulating. And in fact, even the setting that John paints them in, they're in this home, is the mark of where disciples actually dwell, where they are most at peace. They are in a home, and they've opened up their home with lavish hospitality to honor Jesus with food and fellowship. Our small groups, our communities, this is where the marks of true discipleship are set and happen and occur. The feel of this moment when you read verses 1 through 6 in contrast to the surrounding verses is one of laughter and relaxation. There's this sense of security and contentment. And so as the world, as the world schemes and strives for the good life, what we see is that the true disciples of Jesus, they receive it and they enjoy it. The true disciples of Jesus receive the good life and actually enjoy it. So John sets the scene this way, verse 2 of John 12. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among them reclining at the table with Jesus. So in this instant, we are transported from all of the dark, striving, political shenanigans, all of the news feeds, all of the propaganda, all of the conspiracy theories, all of the fears about this plague and that happening and that. All of it. In an instant, we're just set into this place of people resting in the presence of Jesus in a house living the good life with their God. Martha, she's there doing exactly what she loves to do. She's serving. In every scene in the gospel, Martha is always moving. She's always serving. She's just being who she is. And I love the description of Lazarus. Lazarus is reclining at the table with Jesus. You know, you can just see him. He's got his feet propped up on the table. He's kicked way back. He's got that, I was dead for four days. Now I'm alive look on his face. <laughs> He's just chilling, man. He's like, life is so good. I was blind and now I see. I was lost and now I'm found. I was dead and now I'm going to live forever. Amazing grace saved me. 
And most importantly, this text tells us specifically that they were with Jesus. They were with Jesus physically, and they were with Jesus in heart, soul, and mind. And they had found a way off the hamster wheel of life to this place of repose with God. Then Mary enters, verse 3 of John 12, and she took about a pint of pure nard. Nard sounds gross, but it wasn't gross. An expensive perfume. Most historical scholars think a year's worth of wages. Translate that to whatever a year's worth of wages is for you here in modern day SD. And she poured it out on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Mary's action of pouring out this pure spikenard, this beautiful perfume, it captures, it really puts the capstone on what the essence of a true disciple is. Mary poured out that which was of incredible and in fact probably of most value to her in her culture. Monetarily, traditionally, nostalgically, it was maybe a family heirloom. And she took it to the feet of Jesus and she said, it is all yours. Lavish, wasteful worship in devotion to Jesus. We see from this scene that to capture the essence of discipleship, Mary, she was so savior-focused. She was so intent on seeing and honoring and being near Jesus and giving to Jesus his due that she wasn't even focused on what anybody else in the room was thinking about her. In this culture in particular, for a woman to let down her hair was scandalous. And so in a room full of men, Mary cast all social sensibilities aside to honor Jesus. All sense of self just cast at the feet of Jesus. I don't care what they think about me. I don't care if I get the promotion. I don't care if my neighbors think I'm strange. I don't care if I lose this or that situation or that relationship. I want to pour out my life upon Jesus. Mary exemplified humility. In every scene in all of the Gospels, Mary is always at the feet of Jesus. In the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, as well as the Gospel of John. She's always lower than Jesus. She's never standing over Jesus. She's never staring Jesus eye to eye. She's always at his feet. And in this scene, she takes it one step further, and she wipes his feet with her hair. Mary's was a life poured out. A life poured out is the mark of true discipleship. Everything about her devotion says that she had just given every facet of herself to him. Now notice in verse 3, we're heading to the book of Leviticus now. Here we go. Notice in verse 3, the house was filled with the fragrance, John tells us, the fragrance of this beautiful perfume, this spikenard. The whole space was filled up with this pleasing aroma of Mary's radical discipleship. What you need to understand is that this is more than just a little descriptive detail to kind of fill up our imaginations as we read. John didn't waste any words. He was a very sophisticated author. And so John is picking up here on a theology of devotion, on a theology of discipleship that's rooted in the Old Testament and seen very clearly in the book of Leviticus. You guys ready to go to Leviticus? This is going to be awesome. The reason I wanted to do this with you guys is because I want you to learn how to read your Bibles. Even Leviticus is about you and Jesus. All of it, the whole thing, the stuff that we're like, I don't understand what this means. It means that God loves you and you're part of his kingdom. And we're going to talk about how that is the case right now. For 95% of us, the book of Leviticus is probably not in our top five reads. It's probably not in our top thousand reads. Uh, most of you have read it, but not maybe read it all the way through. If you haven't read the book of Leviticus, um, I'm going to be very forthright with you. It's a gross book. 
it's, it's gross. There are like detailed instructions about how the ancient Jewish communities were to handle people with like these gnarly skin diseases and what they only describe as bodily discharges. Just leave it there for that. There are these bizarre commands throughout the book of Leviticus, things like don't wear garments with two interwoven types of threads. There's warnings not to eat bats, as if all of us this afternoon were like, oh, I can't wait to have some bat for lunch. No bats. Leviticus, it lays out all of the ritualistic feasts for the Jewish people, all their traditions, all the practices that were being performed or to be performed by the priests in the temple. That's all in the book of Leviticus. And Leviticus is actually a very, very bloody book of sacrifice. There are food offerings being burned on the altar to God. There are drink offerings being poured out on the burning altar to God. And there are a lot of bleeding, dying animals being put on the altar as offerings to God. Burnt offerings is the literal Hebrew. And as these food offerings and the drink offerings were being poured out and these animals were being slaughtered and then burned on the altar... These delightful odors, this sweet aroma would fill the temple as the animal sacrifices were burning. Some 15 times, the author of Leviticus says, they created an aroma, a fragrance pleasing to the Lord. We're fasting every Wednesday as a community group. Most of us are. And I went out for a walk last Wednesday, and I was so hungry. And like every one of my neighbors was barbecuing. <laughs> I'm serious. I was walking. I was like, whoa, that smells so good. And I walked to the next house. I was like, can I, can I come over later and break my fast with you? So pleasing, these aromas. So we moderns, we tend to read through Leviticus going, what in the world is going on here? And our faces are scrunched up. This is gross. But actually, every one of those sacrificial offerings, those outpourings of those sacrifices, they were pictures of what true discipleship is. Your discipleship, my discipleship to Jesus. It is no less than the sacrificial offering of our whole being to God that pleases him and fills the world with the fragrance of our love for him and his love for us. Discipleship is the sacrificial offering of every facet of our being to God, and it fills the world with the fragrance of our love for him and his love for us. I want to just drive this home for us, from Leviticus all the way to the New Testament. Because St. Paul picked up on this imagery from Leviticus in his writings. In fact, when Paul thought of himself, when he framed up the way that he did his missionary journeys and his church planting endeavors, he thought of himself as a Levitical priest offering sacrifices to God. We read in Romans chapter 15, you don't have to turn there, I'll read it for you. Paul says that God gave him the priestly duty, that's Levitical language, of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Paul viewed his church planting endeavors as a priest preparing a sacrifice of Gentiles to be given to God. That's powerful to me. I love that. At the very end of his life, when St. Paul was imprisoned in Rome and certain death was looming over his head, he wrote to his young protege, Timothy, he said, I am already being poured out like a drink offering. At the very end of his life, every last drop of Paul's life was poured out for Jesus and he framed it in this image of Leviticus. I'm the drink offering now given to my king. And he applied this sacrificial Levitical imagery to you and I, the church. 11 chapters of the most magisterial, philosophical, and important theological writing in the history of humankind, the book of Romans. 11 chapters. 
Jesus did this. Jesus is this. You are the sons of God because of Jesus. You are the daughters of God because of the resurrection. All creation is groaning and waiting for the coming resurrection of all humanity. All of these lofty points of theology, 1 through 11 of chapter, chapters 1 through 11 of Romans, and then in chapter 12, Paul turns a corner, and he says, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Two concluding thoughts to take us into communion this morning. Our lives, we can live them manipulating, full of anxiety, striving, cajoling for power, bullying for control. We may do it conspicuously. We may do it very secretly. But the temptation to be Pharisaical or Sadducean or even Judas-like dwells within each one of us. And John, the author, and Mary, the exemplar of discipleship, would say to us, it's a life of misery. It's a life of futility. We don't get to twist the dials of creation to fit our own kingdom. And so turn from that. Or, like Mary, we can pour out our lives. Like the Levitical sacrifices, we can frame up our lives as if we are being placed on the altar. And the way that we do that, two concrete thoughts to close this and take us to communion. The way we do that is, number one, we do that as a joyful response to God. As a joyful response, and number two, we do that as a decision of the will. Let's talk about this for just a moment. Number one, a life poured out is a joyful response to God. So Paul takes 11 chapters in the book of Romans to talk about what Jesus has done, who Jesus is, how amazing Jesus is, how wonderful he is, all the works that he has accomplished. Then after 11 chapters of God this, God that, God will, God has, God always will, in chapter 12, Paul says, in view of that, In view of God's mercy, this is your true and proper worship. Paul says to the Romans, if you get a glimpse of the goodness of the gospel, the only thing you can do is respond by saying, I give you everything, God, joyfully, freely, without restraint. It's a joyful response. God's mercy, the gospel of grace, and his love for you is the motivation for pouring out your life to him. We're joyfully responding with our whole life laid down before him. In the scene with Mary, Mary is not going to Jesus pouring out the spikenard, the perfume, and washing his feet with her hair in the hopes that he will love her. She has experienced Jesus' love. She has seen his work. She has felt him know her and love her, and so she responds joyfully. It's not an effort. It's not a labor. It's something that just flows out of her. And what we need to understand is that is the foundation of true discipleship. We do what we do because we're loved. We fall prey to doing what we do, trying to earn God's favor and earn God's love. And really all we're trying to do is twist the dials just in a religious way of creation. But when we set back and we meditate and we come to grips with the fact that our Father loves us so greatly, it transforms everything. At Neighbors, we like to say that the essence of Christianity or the essence of discipleship is to know and experience ourselves as loved and then give our loved selves to others. That's it. That's all discipleship is. Know and experience yourself as loved. Use all the practices to experience that. And then give your loved self to others. Without the foundation, this first foundation of a joyful response, 
to pouring out our lives before God, if without the foundation of God's love motivating us and his grace motivating us, then our behaviors are always going to devolve down into that anxious striving where we're doing what we're doing to earn a place with God. And eventually, eventually, we'll either become like the Pharisees, we'll be so prideful, we think we're checking off the boxes and we've got it. We'll start bullying everybody else. You need to check off these boxes so you can get to God like I've gotten to God. That's very Pharisaical. Or we become so discouraged and burned out on it, we become Sadducean and we just start compromising the texts. We just start compromising the truth of God. We become theological cowards and we just give up on the whole kit and caboodle as we talked about last week in our deconstruction talk. Second though, second, if a life poured out is first a joyful response, it is simultaneously a decision of the will. This is so important. Through our lifetimes, Jesus is going to always require us incrementally, one foot in front of the other, He's going to always be asking us to give up more control of our lives to him. Over and over and over. From day one of salvation to the last day of the physical resurrection of our body, the whole of discipleship is Jesus coming and saying, give me that. Give me that completely. And those Pharisaical and those Sadducean tendencies, those kind of Judas-like tendencies to kind of fake it, kind of keep control of it, kind of put a facade over it, Jesus loves us and he comes to us in our lives, in circumstances, in community, in scriptures, on Sunday mornings, in the middle of sermons, and he very tenderly as a good shepherd says, give me that. Give me that. Give me that lie. Give me that shame. Give me that guilt. Give me that fear. Give me control of that. Let go of that. And in so doing, what Jesus is doing, as he did with Mary, is he's calling forth the joyful response of pouring out the things that we consider most valuable. Every single one of us, as true disciples of Jesus, will have to make thousands, maybe millions of lifelong decisions to let go of and pour out that which we consider of most value to us in devotion to Jesus. And it includes more than just our material wealth. In fact, I think oftentimes in the affluence of American Christianity, the wealth thing is easy for us to get rid of. It's not really hurting us. Jesus is going to come, and for some of us, he's going to say, the expectations and the dreams you have for your life, pour them out. And we're going to say, well, I've got them bottled up right here. And look, they smell good, and they're worth a lot, and they're noble, and they've got your name all over them. And they look super holy, and he's going to say, I want you to pour that out. And it will be poured out. It will spill out on the ground when those expectations begin to not be met. And your response, your response will be a decision of the will. I joyfully pour out my expectations and dreams. For some of us in this place, lots of young fiancés in this community, lots of young married people, baby bellies are going to start popping up all over the place. It's going to be like a Gatlin gun of babies over the next few years. <laughs> Here's what I've learned as a parent. My oldest baby, my oldest baby is 18. She's, she's on the way out. And this is what I, you parents just weep with me. But here's what I know. Jesus will come over and over and over in our parenting process and he will say, that kid, pour her out. Your hopes for her, your fears for her, I got to get off this topic quick. 
<laughs> your boy, your two girls, pour them out. I mean, he asked Father Abraham to put his most cherished son, Isaac, on the altar. And I can't tell you how many times over these 18 years with Sophia and now with both my other two younger kids being teenagers, Joby and Nyla, my wife and I look at each other and we're like, we offer these kids to God. They're yours. We can't control the outcome of their characters, their souls. We have labored and shepherded and prayed our guts out, changed diapers when they were little and changed emotional diapers as teenagers. We, we have been doing all of that. And now we, we pour them out. We pour them out. It's terrifying. This is the most infinitely valuable thing to me is my wife and my children. And then the next concentric circle to that in my world is you guys. I have to pour this church out every Sunday. What if it doesn't make it? Pour it out. What if it does make it? Pour it out. We have to pour out our relationships and our hopes for them. Healthy marriages and healthy, healthy husbands and wives and healthy singles are always looking at our relationships saying, me and Jesus and this relationship, pour it out. Poured out whatever God is doing. We have to pour out our rights to ourselves, which is so counterintuitive when the cultural mantra is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness according to my rights. Christianity and the kingdom of God are so counter to that. So opposite of that. And Jesus comes and he will say, your political spectrums, your philosophical ideas, all of your arguments, all of your podcasts, pour them out at my feet. Pour them out at my feet. And over and over he will say, pour out your need for control and trust me. And so pouring out is all about obedience, you guys. You have the joyful response, like when we're all brand new born again believers, I'm going to be martyred for you, Jesus. I can't wait. 20 years later, I've got three teenage kids. I'm like, I don't want to die. <laughs> Year one of Christianity, put me in a canoe and send me to the pygmies. Now I'm like, no, I like South Park. I want to live in my neighborhood forever. <laughs> he wants us to pour it all out. Radical obedience. And I'm telling you guys, true disciples, they look bizarre to the world. Bizarre. I mean, in my own life, at age 40, when you're supposed to be landing the plane and heading for your 60s in retirement, we had built this incredible church community in Seattle, brand new $3.5 million building that took us three years to get into, right in the center of King County, multiple, multiple parking places, which is like a miracle in Seattle. We had labored our guts out there, and Jesus said, I'm calling you to go and plant again. And when that all began, both my wife and I were like, no. We're not going to pour this out. We just got it all bottled up. This is when you start drinking it. And some of my friends, some of my closest friends were like, what are you doing? Are you crazy? What are you doing? Pour it out. And it has been the greatest and sweetest, most fragrant time of our lives. I have never smelt the deliciousness of this offering to God in our lives in this act of obedience, not only for my wife and I, for my kids, for our team at this church, for everything. I've been in multiple conversations with Christians in this community that their lives are being poured out, and they look bizarre to the people around them. Their decisions, so there are decisions being made in this community right now that are going to really complicate young couples' financial decisions, but they want to honor Jesus. It's really going to complicate their finances. And most people in the world are looking at them going, well, why don't you just do it this way? It makes so much sense. And they're like, well, I'm pouring out my obedience to Jesus. <laughs> there, there, 
there are people in this church that are making career path choices that the parents are like, what? Uh, what? Why? No, no. It looks bizarre, but they want to pour their career path. They want to pour their life out for Jesus, regardless of what their parents are saying. Of course, they respect and love their parents, but Jesus is taking priority. And you guys can pray for these nameless souls. There are people in our church right now who, in tears, are obeying Jesus, and their parents are literally shaming them, shunning them, casting them aside, pouring their lives out. And I'm telling you, that their lives, the fragrance of Jesus, is just wafting through the world through these saints. And they are a pleasing aroma to God and to the saints of God. To the saints of God, we're all like... Well, that smells pretty good. That looks pretty good. Now, to those who are not pouring out their lives, cajoling, manipulating, keeping control, pseudo sense of security, they're going, whoa, that's really pungent. That's really strong. Whoa, that's, oh, too much. Too much. As we come to communion right now, let's search our hearts, church. This is our opportunity. These anxieties of image management that we're all bearing with and the pursuit of platform, whatever that means to you, and and trying to control the universe, just right now, take a moment and take a deep breath into your belly and go, this is all futile. I could twist every dial till the day I die. And then the universe is going to go on and I'm going to be forgotten. This is futile. Just recognizing that and surrendering to the futility of that is so freeing. As the pressures of Pharisees and Sadducees and a world cajoling for power presses in against the church, I think the greatest temptation the church is going to face is that Sadducean temptation to compromise and become theological cowards. Well, Jesus couldn't have meant that level of obedience. Jesus couldn't have meant this when he said this. The text can't mean that. And to keep our place in the world, I think the church is going to have to make a decision of the will as a joyful response to not become theologically cowardful. What's the word? Cowardice. And you know, this is not condemning. I think it's the most freeing thing is to realize that we each have that temptation every day to become sort of judicy in our Christianity. We have all the like trappings, but the heart is just further and further away from the Lord. And he comes, he came to Judas as much as he came to us. He offered Judas the bread and the wine. He offered the enemy selling him out. He offered the one who was using him for his own personal gain. Jesus said, I offer you my body. And Judas, the only difference between Judas and, and us is Judas said, no, I'm going to keep control and he lost everything. The love of Jesus will never cease. Martha and Mary and Lazarus sitting there with his feet kicked back, enjoying this food and fellowship with Jesus, honoring him in their home with hospitality. The true disciples of Jesus, the marks of the true disciples of Jesus, a people of rest, a people of non-anxious presence, a people with open homes and lavish hospitality saying, you know what life is about? Life is about laughter and good food with good friends and family. Whether I get the raise or not, whether I get the Instagram followers or not, whether I have the money that I think I need or not, if I have good friends, good family, and a food filled, a home food with, home filled with food and with Jesus, life is 
Life is good. And I, I will pour myself out for that. As we come to communion, he's coming to us all right now and he's saying, give me that. Give me that. Pour it out. No less than this in the coming years and coming generations of the church will mark our discipleship. God is renewing the church. As cultural Christianity falls on the wayside and as the secular and spiritual prophets portend the coming doom of the West, civilization is coming apart at the seams. God is raising up this renewed group of people who are saying, I am pouring everything out for the kingdom of Jesus. Allow that to be the posture of your heart and the prayer of your heart and your soul this morning. Lord Jesus, we, we come to your feet. We lower ourselves. You love us. You love Judas. You love the, manipulate, the, the, the manipulative, broken, bullying, scared, anxious part of us. And you come to us and you just say, come down to my feet and pour it all out. The things that we're just got to strangle hold on because it's so valuable to us. Things that are actually really good, our, our hopes, our dreams, our marriages, our singleness, our friends, our children, our coworkers, our friends, our student, fellow students. But today, you're giving us an opportunity to invite you into the house and to, to pour it all out right here in the center of the city to pour out our lives for you. And so meet with us as we offer you our bodies as living sacrifices in Jesus' name.